0: Welcome back to another episode of Weird Distractions Podcast, a podcast where I, your host, Alex, rotate in discussing true crimes, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you, and more than likely, what your local corkboard maker would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week, I'm going to be discussing another true crime case, but before we dive into that, I do have a bit of housekeeping, and I need to tell you what I need a distraction from. If you just want to dive right into the case, I suggest you skip about three to five minutes. In terms of housekeeping, I just want to give a little reminder that there will be a new Weird Spam episode out for folks on the Here for the Weird tier over on Patreon. This is a monthly series where myself and a guest read all the weird spam and scams we receive. Head on over to www.patreon.com slash Weird Distractions Podcast to learn more about both tiers and consider joining the weird fam we have over there. In terms of a distraction this week, I need a distraction from the fact that Halloween has come and gone, and I feel as though I didn't get to celebrate it like I wanted to, which is silly because I did do things, but it's, I don't know, I I think the nostalgia of Halloween as a kid is hard to find as an adult, if that makes sense to anybody else. I just feel like that high of going trick-or-treating or going and doing spooky things or even just like Halloween parties in general, it's missing something as an adult. And that's what I need a distraction from. I think I really miss Halloween and just like the nostalgia around it. And, you know, not to sound very, very depressing, but growing up kind of takes the fun out of certain things. And I feel for me, it's taken out the fun of Halloween. But who knows, maybe next year I will try harder to celebrate in a way that makes me happy. But moving on from that, I think it's time to get in this week's case. This is going to be a very interesting case, and I hope you enjoy learning about it. This week, we're back to the United States of Weird to discuss another true crime case as mentioned. The case surrounds a woman by the name of Martha Wise, and it's another case that will make you question whether you can trust anyone around you, even the ones you love. Due to potential coarse language, disturbing adult themes, mentions of suicide, and other topics that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. Martha Hazel was born an Aries on April 18th of 1883 in Hardscrabble, Ohio. For geographical reference, Hardscrabble is about an hour and 20 minutes east from the state's capital being Columbus. Martha's parents were Sophia Elizabeth Gienka and Wilhelm Karl-Hassel, both of whom were farmers. Sophia was originally from Germany, while Wilhelm was from Hardscrabble. That's kind of all I could find, really, about Wilhelm. Martha would eventually have a brother named Paul, who was born in 1895, and some sources claim she had other siblings. However, Paul seems to kind of be the only one identified from the websites I came across. In terms of her childhood, I came across some old newspapers that painted an interesting picture of Martha. For example, in a direct quote from the Akron Beacon Journal dated May 7th of 1925, quote, Here are some of the things they tell of Martha Wise. They say that she was her mother's favorite daughter and that as a child, when she could not have her own way, she would lie upon the floor and scream and kick end quote. Which, not to be judgmental because, once again, I do not have a child, but don't most kids do that at a certain point in their life? If they don't get their own way, they kind of have what we call a temper tantrum? No? Maybe? I don't know. Just to me, it was very interesting that this article was like, oh, she would lie on the floor and scream and kick. It's like, I I feel like kids do that even in 2022, but hey, what do I know? Martha more than likely spent many days and evenings working with her family on the farm, milking cows, driving them to the pasture, churning butter, and more. The older Martha got, the more that society wondered if she would marry, especially if she would marry another farmer. According to Murderpedia, by 1906, then 23-year-old Martha met a man named Albert Wise at a box social. Albert was about 36 years old at the time, but the age gap didn't seem to affect the two as reports claim that they were married by 1909. The marriage wasn't sunshine and bliss by any means, with resources hinting that Albert may have seen Martha as more of a farmhand than a wife. Basically, it seemed as though he wanted her to help around his 50 acre farm, which I get, given her farming experience growing up, I'm sure it seemed like a match made in heaven for him. Even when Martha was pregnant, Albert seemingly had her working hard manual labor jobs, such as plowing the fields, creating slot for the pigs, to name a few tasks. As well, Martha was reportedly expected to complete all the household chores, all the baking and cooking, and the cleaning. I'm not sure what Albert did or if the work was considered to have been split evenly, but based on the tone of the information I came across, I'm going to say a lot of the expectation and responsibility fell so on Martha. As if I'm not painting kind of an already stressful situation, as is, things took even more of a turn when the couple's first son, Walter Austin, passed away suddenly. Walton was born on August 14th of 1909, but he passed away on September 24th of that same year. The couple would go on to have four more children, Lester, Everett, Gertrude, and Kenneth. On May 8th of 1922, at the age of 52, Albert suddenly passed away. 40-year-old Martha was now a widow with four children, a huge farm, and just everything else that she needed to take care of and, you know, process her own grief. Eventually Martha sold the farm and purchased a smaller property, one that was 17 acres within Hardscrabble. Based on the information I came across, it seemed like Martha may have leaned on her aunt Lily and Uncle Fred Ginka, along with her own parents, for support. For example, in a direct quote from the previously mentioned Akron Beacon Journal, quote, "When Martha's cow went dry, the Ginkas gave her milk. If she was cold, the Ginkas shared their coal with her." The Ginkas Cloud her fields. End quote. I'm not sure if it was Albert's funeral that started this or not, but I gather that Martha became a frequent flyer for funerals, meaning she would go to any funeral despite potentially not knowing the person that was, you know, being celebrated. Think of this like the macaw version of wedding crashing. Wow! And in a direct quote from the Murderpedia website to paint more of a picture of this whole situation. Quote. Wise's main source of diversion during this period was funerals. She seldom missed a visit to any funeral held in or near the town, whether she had known the deceased or not. When questioned, she simply said that she liked funerals. Her odd behavior and fixation on funerals became more noticeable, and she began not only attending funerals, but openly crying and lamenting at them, no matter who died. End quote. There is a part of me who wonders if maybe she did this after Albert's death to deal with her grief. I mean, I've probably said this before on the show, but everyone grieves differently. Another layer of her behavior around this time seemed to be that she was unable to tell the full truth. For example, neighbors alleged that they were unsure when Martha's stories were real or fake due to her over exaggeration. But her neighbor also acknowledged that Martha was always willing to lend a hand when needed, so I don't want people tuning in to solely get a native, shifted perspective of Martha. Anyways, Martha would reportedly sign love again with a man named Walter Johns, a seemingly local farmhand. Accounts claim that Walter was younger than Martha, which, at the time, her family, friends, and probably the society around her, they, they had a problem with that. Because God forbid, as an older woman goes for a younger man, because only older men can go for younger women. And yes, I'm being very sarcastic here, so... I hope you picked up on that. Martha's mother, Sophie, and her Aunt Lily were allegedly pretty upfront about their thoughts on Martha being with Walter, and their thoughts were, based on what I read, pretty judgmental and unsupportive. I can imagine this would have been hard on Martha's well-being, especially given she was putting herself back out there after Albert's death. Walter and Martha's relationship had fizzled out by the end of 1924, seemingly after being prodded by her family to break things off. Potentially heartbroken and in her feels to the highest degree, Martha perhaps sought some sort of revenge for her pain. In late November of 1924, to celebrate American Thanksgiving, Martha and her family gathered for a meal. This meal ended with Sophie and six others becoming sick to their stomachs. At first glance, it may have looked like food poisoning, especially when some of the attendees began to feel better. Sophie, Martha's mother, was not one of those people, though. Sophie would seemingly get worse with her eventually passing away at age 72 on December 13th of 1924. The loss of Sophie was quickly overshadowed by more blows to the family when Martha's uncle and aunt, Fred and Lily, and their children began experiencing stomach pains. Several of the family members were hospitalized and unfortunately for Fred and Lily, they would never be able to return home. The couple each passed away sometime in February of 1925 due to the stomach-related complications they were experiencing. Fred and Lily's children did recover from this mysterious illness, but I gathered online that they all were diagnosed with some form of partial paralyzation due to whatever they had experienced. For outsiders looking in, including investigators, the whole situation seemed suspicious, especially after Fred and Lily passed away. How was it possible that these individuals, who were all related, were all becoming ill with seemingly similar symptoms? It didn't take long for the local sheriff to find out that Martha had allegedly purchased large amounts of arsenic multiple times around this time period. Due to this discovery, Lily underwent an autopsy, which through this investigators were able to detect the presence of a certain type of poison in her digestive tract. Does anyone want to take a guess as to what kind of poison they found in Lily's digestive tract? If you are currently screaming arsenic, then you are right. Which, this kind of gave a green light for investigators to have Martha come in for questioning. At first, Martha indicated that the arsenic purchases were simply, you know, to kill rats. But after further questioning and maybe a little bit of investigative pushing, Martha Wise admitted that she had used the arsenic in water buckets and in the coffee pots to poison her family members. According to some reports, Martha was quoted saying, Oh God, yes, I did it. The devil told me to. She would confess to poisoning 17 people in total. Now, when it came to her trial it it was a wild one based on what I came across online. I think she was only charged for murdering her aunt Lily, and I'm not sure as to why she wasn't charged with the deaths of her mother, Sophia, or her uncle, Fred. Maybe it was due to lack of evidence. Maybe they didn't come back with an autopsy for either of them. I'm not really sure. Regardless, it didn't seem clear that she was ever charged for the poisonings specifically for the family members that didn't pass away due to being poisoned. And even though she did admit to being guilty for murdering people, that kind of changed when it came to her actually showing up in court. She reportedly pled not guilty to the murder of Frank Lily when she was presented in front of a grand jury on March 23rd of 1925. According to Murderpedia, Martha told the jury that she was all about attending funerals, you know, that old song and dance. But when Martha didn't have any funerals to attend, she alleged that she was driven to create her own, if you catch my drift. By April 7th of 1925, Martha was indicted on first-degree murder. Her trial began on May 4th of that same year, and here's where things become a little bit confusing. Martha's lawyer's name was Joseph Pritchard, yet the prosecutor's name was also Joseph, being Joseph Seymour. I'm wondering if there's like an unspoken code that you have to be a lawyer if your name is Joseph, or if this is just kind of a fluke. Anyways, Martha's lawyer indicated that she was not criminally responsible due to her mental well-being. He further argued that the way Martha's mother and aunt had treated her when she was dating Walter also set her back in her mental health. But there were a couple of setbacks, in which I'm going to directly quote Murderpedia again to explain what those were. Quote, A number of setbacks plagued the defense, including the May 6th suicide of Martha's sister-in-law, Edith Hazel, and the subsequent collapse of her husband, Fred, both of whom had been prepared to testify for the defense. And then the recantation of the testimony by a man named Frank Metzger, who told the prosecution on cross-examination that the defense had asked him to perjure himself to support claims that Martha was, quote, insane, end quote. On top of all this, Martha also took the stand on her own behalf. And I'm not a legal expert but from other cases I've heard of where the defendant has taken the stand for, you know, for themselves, it never seems to end well. I'm unsure as to what Martha exactly said, but it didn't seem to sway the jury. And I say that as resources claim that the jury only took an hour before finding Martha guilty for first-degree murder. However, they did request mercy for Martha. So who knows? Maybe her taking the stand helped in that notion. Martha would be sentenced to life in prison with a term that she would only be freed by executive clemency. Based on what I gathered during my research, Martha was a model prisoner, which always sounds weird in titling in that way, because basically it just means that Martha demonstrated good, non-destructive behavior, but model prisoner is always, I think, the label they slap on folks in that situation. By 1962, when Martha was about 79 years old, Ohio Governor Michael DeSalle and Apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, but he commuted Martha's sentence from first-degree murder to second-degree. She was granted parole at this time due to this, but had nowhere else to go. Allegedly, living family members didn't want to take her in, and presumably due to her history, retirement homes also didn't want to house her. Because she had nowhere to go, she returned to prison, meaning her parole and her sentence would be revoked. Martha remained in prison until 1971, when she would pass away at the age of 88 on June 28th. She would be buried at the Oakdale Cemetery in Marysville, Ohio. Now, let's wrap up this week's distraction. When it comes to a murder within the family, I think we as a society become weirdly fascinated with the who, what, when, where, and the most importantly, the why. Family, to some, is the most supportive group of people in your life, but to others, it can cause great distress and trauma. When it comes to Martha's case, it seems as though her family may have been supportive to a degree. But that changed when Martha pursued someone younger than her. Her fascination around funerals is also interesting. It's nothing to be ashamed of or to judge in my opinion, but at the time of Martha's crimes, it seems that this outward interest was very heavily judged. Basically, Martha just sounded to be judged seven ways to Sunday. But what do you think? Let me know your thoughts on the case over on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or TikTok. And remember, trust your gut and maybe question those around you. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month, you get exclusive content, such as bonus episodes and series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early access to the regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash WeirdDistract Podcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Susan, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of Weird Distractions. If you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis but still want to support it maybe as a one time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble or sign up for a one time donation over on Buy Me a Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some long-time listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and too-close-to-home true crime stories. You can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcasts at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.